Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. I want to mention a couple of things before we get to the introduction for this week's guest. First, you're going to hear some music selections on this week's episode. There is a particular group that I love. They're called The Wholesome. And they have a debut album called Alive Tonight. So check it out. I hope you like it. Again, the group is called The Wholesome. And the debut album is Alive Tonight. The wind defends the flame. It blows right through me. Let's me down like a childhood friend. Also, I wanted to mention that we have a lot of listeners as of this week in some interesting places. And I know some of you have written to me saying that you really like when the place that you're from is mentioned. So I want to make sure, just in case anyone is listening from these places, I wanted to make sure to mention that we had a lot of listeners in Norway, Canada, Ireland, Australia, the UK, and Sri Lanka. Very interesting. So if you're from one of these places and want to be in touch with us, as always, to let us know what is resonating with you, please, please do. We always love to hear from you. You can be sure to be in contact at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. So today, we have a guest who is going to be on this episode and also is going to continue and be on a bonus episode for the Patreon subscribers. Patreon subscribers have been really enjoying these bonus episodes. So definitely take advantage of that gift to you if you become a patron. So go to patreon.com slash indoctrination and become a supporter of the show. And not only will you get these bonus episodes, but you'll get some merchandise and just some wonderful things from us to say how wonderful you are for supporting the show. Today on the show, we have Priscilla Isles. She's a justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion trainer and facilitator from London. They're an advocate and speaker passionate about raising awareness around the issues that neurodivergent people face, specifically those of multiple marginalized identities. Alongside normalizing conversations around vulnerabilities to cult abuse, career, and intergenerational trauma, Priscilla is a biracial, neurodivergent, queer person who survived eight years in two different cults and has worked in many toxic workplaces with cult-like dynamics. Priscilla is also a trustee for Camden Disability Action and has a special interest in effective and holistic therapeutic frameworks and trauma-informed approaches. And they recently completed a foundation certificate in integrative psychotherapy and counseling at the Minster Center. Their first published book chapter will be out later this year in the forthcoming Birdsong from Inobservable Worlds, an anthology on psychiatry and race edited by mental health activist Dolly Sim. 
You can reach out to Priscilla on social media or via her email at priscillaisles at gmail.com. And we'll be sure to put that in the show notes for you. Here's Priscilla now. I'm so happy to have Priscilla Isles on the show today. I get to speak to you while I'm here in California and you're all the way over in in England. And I I love that. I love speaking to people who are so far away, but we feel so close, like we're speaking in the same room. So I would love for you to, uh, to spend a few moments just introducing yourself to the people listening and then... We will get into the many subjects that we get to cover with each other today. So go for it. Hi, I'm Priscilla from London, UK. And I've just set up a freelance DEI or EDI, however you want to call it, a diversity equity inclusion consultant. So that's my work. I also do life modeling. Um, I also write. (laughs) I also do so many things, like a lot of neurodivergent people. I play the cello, I do ballet and all that kind of stuff. And But also, yeah, I'm a cult awareness advocate and I have been since around the time of lockdown. Uh, Yeah, I'm really passionate about, you know, spreading awareness around cults and and their coercive control techniques and because it's just something that I did a massive deep dive into and and found out so much about. And I I, I realized there was sort of a, a lacking in understanding about how that interacts with being neurodivergent and multiple marginalized. So that's the kind of perspective I like to bring. And I and I, you know, looking at things through an intersectional lens, which is what I do anyway for the sort of DEI inclusion work I do. So yeah, sort of bringing in different worlds. <laughs> Right. Okay. So when you also talk about being marginalized, I know that that people are marginalized for many reasons and sometimes multiple reasons. And you mentioned a couple of them. If you don't mind just taking a moment talking more about you as you identify as someone who is marginalized, in what way or ways do you see yourself as that? And are, are those the same issues that you address in others? So I'm neurodivergent. I was diagnosed with ADHD in my early 30s. I'm 37 now. And I'm autistic, which is I'm self-diagnosed. So I'm still pursuing a diagnosis and that. And that, you know, so I'm late diagnosed uh, and late realizing that I am neurodivergent, which, you know, has its own <laughs> issues in terms of how much ableism has been internalized and how much you sort of made yourself wrong, which I, you know, I'll, I'll go into. And I'm also, I, I call myself queer, I'm, I'm pansexual, but my pronouns are she, she, her, they, them. And I am biracial, mixed race. So uh, my mum was is Black Zimbabwean and my dad is white English. Those are all things that sort of interact and can, you know, I guess, exacerbate the other marginalizations and and just the sense of feeling like, you know, if I, if I had been a white man for example a white boy maybe the neurodivergence may have been picked up earlier that's the other thing with having multiple marginalizations is that you can find yourself feeling left out of a lot of groups based around one single identity um and so there's that that sense of feeling like you don't belong anywhere even with being mixed heritage which in you know in one sense it, yeah it's like it's a privilege and and in terms of the colorism that you know that is in the community, in terms of being seen as more, I don't know, attractive. But then you know, 
it's it's another thing in itself to be fetishized right or to or to also feel like you're not either black or white or gay or straight and you don't really fit into a neat sort of category so there's all sorts of things with that you know I used to get called coconut at school which was a really horrible term which meant I acted white but was black so there's this, you know, even from people who are racialized themselves, I would actually get the most obvious sort of slurs and and ignorance of comments. That's really quite hurtful. And this idea that you have there's one way of being black, just because I maybe speak in a sort of maybe seem quote unquote nerdy way about things or like certain things like Victorian literature or something going up it's you know I'm seen as this sort of trying to be white person all sorts of things I could go into with that and even being in queer spaces and feeling like being bisexual there's this biphobia that's really rampant rampant you get a lot of um, profiles that say I don't want to date bisexuals because you know it's just this idea that we're greedy or we're going to cheat on someone you know there's all sorts of like phobias and myths and uh, yeah or just mis- uh, presumptions around being pansexual bisexual right it's also very hard when you're dealing with growing up and being marginalized in the language that's used towards you um it's very hard to be labeled something uh which is actually something that happens quite a bit in cults that you're called something uh and labeled something and you have to sort of figure out a way to either agree to it to make the people happy or to fight against it or to prove them wrong or whatever else. But so much of it is about how you get identified. So I want to be able to hear your story. And I I want to say first um, that I've worked with a number of people who have been involved in cultic groups, particularly, I think, the one-on-one cultic relationship who say that they are on the spectrum or they have Asperger's. They say about themselves once leaving it that it was hard for them to pick up on certain cues and they figured that people were going to be straight shooters like they were, that you mean what you say and say what you mean. It can be very depressing just to find that that that's not how everyone operates in their life in general, but that people could really take advantage of a trusting nature or someone who who is just so at times even desperate to have a connection with someone because they've been marginalized. And so just getting that affection and attention can be something that lowers your defenses to a great degree. So I've worked with it a lot and it's interesting. And that's why I was so excited also to talk to you because, you know, you've experienced this from your own life and then finding yourself in multiple different, you know, groups, which happens as well. Where would you like to begin your story. It's yours. So I'll, I'll let you decide. I guess I'll start with where I was at when I, I entered the first group landmark. Great. How old were you? So I was in my early, early twenties before that I had experienced a lot of uh, self-doubt and, and failure in life. Uh, I think there's a point where maybe they call it the quarter life crisis where you feel like you're meant to have hit all these milestones, be in a good relationship long-term, have found your uh, organisation that you're going to work in. I mean, I mean, that point is people move around all the time, but, you know, I, I, I would have found a good job. I would have been in a stable position. Uh, I would, wouldn't be living with my parents. <laughs> I mean, again, that's changed a lot, I think. 
So I was sort of in, I was in this situation where I had got a, a BA in English literature, an MA in magazine journalism, and I would be looking on LinkedIn and I would be seeing all my peers getting all these editorial jobs and doing really well. And I was just stuck in this roundabout of seasonal retail jobs, uh, just internships, which I just did internship after internship, not getting paid. And that's partly also because I didn't have that confidence in myself, um, just allowing myself to sort of be exploited by all these organizations <laughs> that, you know, some of them, it's a really harsh world journalism, you know, and I remember having one review editor to tell me basically that I should give up and do something else because my review wasn't good enough or something, you know, in this in this music magazine internship. And I just thought, you know, that made me really angry afterwards. It was really upsetting to, t- to be told that as an intern. Awful, right? It is awful, right? I mean, that's the whole point of being an intern that you're learning. Yeah. That you're new. And so don't put you down, but teach you or give you that the, the grace, the, the grace period. <laughs> you, you are still, you know, up and coming. And I, uh, oh, Oh, it's so terrible when people say things like that. You know, I feel like it has so much more to say about them than about you. Yeah, totally. Anyway, you know, you were having kind of a shaky foundation, foundational feeling at the time. Got it. Yeah. And I was wondering what was wrong that I wasn't able to secure a job, uh, you know, a really fulfilling job. I think I found a, an ad- administrator job by the point I, I went into Landmark and, you know, I wasn't happy there either because I wasn't good at admin at all. But this is the entry level jobs that, you know, agencies would offer you to offer to you. And I was crap at it. I didn't like it at all. I was bored. And eventually I got let go. But uh, yeah, I just wasn't happy. And so I was, yeah, I felt really depressed. And I think, I don't think my mom really knew what to do. So I was in that situation of feeling just a failure, not knowing what was so wrong with me, that I would be losing staff and I would be feeling scatterbrained and forgetful and just completely unorganized and like everything was overwhelming. And so that's when my mum's friend actually suggested that I do Landmark, the Landmark Forum. I don't even remember how much of a conversation we had about it. I think she gave me a booklet and, you know, the landmark language is notoriously vague. So I think it was something about transforming possibilities and creating a new realm of being or something. I don't even know. Oh, right. Oh, it's all about mindset. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of magical thinking, you know, and if you could just get into the right headspace, everything will come together. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. There's so much. That says nothing. It's just a lot of nothing. And you like it with the being in the something of possibility of the something of the thing. (laughs) Yeah. That's actually one of the signs of something that could potentially mess with your head that you feel like you need to decipher something that's really indecipherable. Yeah. I mean, I was in such a state of of feeling depressed. I'm not sure that I even had the right mindset to actually take in uh information and to, to assess whether something was good or not and I'd never done any help any sort of self-help before my view was that it was sort of for you know happy clappy people <laughs> so, 
sort of uh, not my thing um and so my mum had just paid for this course and I I think I don't know if I even did much internet research which is like just to now seem to me now seems ridiculous but I may have seen I think there was an observer article which you know I've been fighting the observer about this because it's it basically says that they're fine <laughs> and that you get like good stuff out of the forum <laughs> from having been in the forum and only talk to people in the forum so that was you know for me to see that in observer probably at the time would have been like oh well I'm sure it's okay then and I yeah you know, I mean I, I, I may have even seen that afterwards I can't even remember but like I just so I hardly did any research and I just as I said saw this booklet which didn't say much and and that was it I went on this weekend course mm-hmm. what was it like it was like nothing I'd I'd ever done before it was very intense and I don't even know what I was expecting. I mean, there was all these rules, first of all, which were like, seemed very restrictive. So it was like, you weren't even allowed to, you weren't no sort of mind altering substances. So you weren't even allowed to have a coffee or paracetamol, no medication or anything like that. I wasn't even on any medication, but you know, if I'd known better, I would have been thinking, what what do you mean? (laughs) What do you mean? So there's all that to begin with that seemed quite strict. And it was this conference room in this in their centre in Houston, and it just seemed really like a sort of corporate meeting with all these chairs laid out very precisely, which I I realised is very deliberate the way they lay out the set up the room. Um, everything is in a specific place, and this guy Jerry comes on Jerry Baden, and I think you know I was sceptical. And I was feeling like, why are there all these rules? What do you mean you can't even have a coffee? And it starts really early, which for me is, is it, you know, I struggle in the mornings. So I think it started around nine, um, something like that. It didn't finish till about past midnight. And I remember that there was this whole section where they, like Jerry just shouted at us saying, we're calling us assholes, saying you're all assholes. <laughs> You're all assholes. <laughs> yeah, so it's very intense. So they had this whole thing where they're shouting at us and how we've been living a lie and lying to ourselves and everything else. And there's this whole thing to to share. There's a whole pressure, um, and and which I re- realized later was a sort of confessional aspect of it. So you come on and you share like an aspect of your life that's not working, and you get coaching on it. And so people would be coming up and sharing about, I think one of the first ones I remember is this woman sharing about uh, someone at work who was making her life a misery and who she thought was bullying her. And I remember being quite shocked that the coaching was, yeah, that's on you, basically. Like, that's your story. And what have you done to sort of have this person be like this with you? And you're not taking responsibility. And it was quite, it seemed pretty harsh. But I think because there was like this aspect of humor in it, I think that really, that's what hooked me. Like part of it was what really hooked me because he was telling us all these quite harsh things, but he was doing it in a way as if to say, oh, it's tough love, that this is the truth I'm telling you about yourselves. And this is what you need to hear that no one else will tell you. And this is what you're paying for. Wow. Oh my goodness. 
but oh yeah here's a funny bit and I'm gonna make you all laugh now right right you know yeah. so there's, there's all this yeah. sort of roller coaster emotional journey at, and just um this urgency the sense of urgency that you needed to like what they called it getting on the court you know if you're not sharing then you're not playing like a big big game you're not being part of this are you just sitting on the sidelines that that's what he's constantly talking about and there was so there was a lot of information too and you know part of it like was just feeling sleepy and not being able to take it all in and then you know he he would be saying well if you're feeling sleepy that could be your resistance if you're feeling a headache that could be your resistance you know what is it that you're not wanting to hear basically that that's what you need to hear or if you want to go out the toilet then you'll be you could be missing a bit that would actually be really important for you to listen hear so yeah I mean they say oh we don't allow we don't have that thing where we don't allow people out for bathroom breaks but they do have this sort of coercive thing of like well you could be missing out if you do go out the room I mean, it's so unfortunately clever to do it that way, to have it be where, you know, we're not saying this, but we're saying this. You know, you can wonder how trustworthy a group of people is going to be when they really, they will say, we don't have this rule, but we will guilt you into something or make you afraid. Yeah, exactly. Fear of missing out. Right. Yes. And it's so it's so manipulative. So I'm wondering just about this experience in Landmark. I mean, you know, yes, everything is sort of planned out well. I Before I ask about the impact it had on you when you said that, you know, you had learned about when people, when the chairs are put out, you know, just so exactly and everything is in its place. What do you see that that is for at this point? What was the purpose of that? Well, the chairs are very close together. I noticed that and I feel like it takes away from the sense of boundaries that that like you're just all in it together and one group. I think it contributes to that sort of group think mentality. And it's like also, yeah, that's the other thing. If you're not at the very end, if you're in the middle, it's so squashed that it's almost like you feel like you'll be an inconvenience to leave. Because it's like that it's such a narrow sort of space that you I don't know if you just thought about this, but it's such a narrow space that you have to walk out that like that's another way that I think probably keeps you in the room and keeps you in your chair. Ah, right. Because you have to do the excuse me, pardon me, excuse me, pardon me. And it's uncomfortable. It will be obvious. Okay, right. So what impact did it have on you as you were experiencing then, but also in retrospect? Well, I, f- I first want to say as well, there was this, this one thing that happened because it was very impactful. And I think this was on the third, the last day, but there was a like, what I now realize was a basically a re- regression exercise, uh, a guided meditation where they were basically getting you to um, like imagine that you were afraid of everyone in the room uh, or imagine that you're like a little child. And people just started crying, like really like heavy, heavy sobbing, bawling. I think some people were on the floor. It was quite bizarre, just the amount of of like real fear that people felt and paranoia and, and that sense of paranoia that's created. And then you realize you're all afraid of each other. And and how funny is that, you know? 
how ridiculous is that? And then everyone started to laugh. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, again, you're taking through these like roller coasters of emotions. And I think, I think in the end, it's like, oh, imagine, oh, I don't, I can't even remember something about loving each other. Or so it's basically like, you know, you go from being really scared, uh, feeling really berated to feeling like bonding with this group over the this really, really intense experience and being very, very vulnerable. And for me, that was like, it's pretty eye-opening to see that, to see people who you'd seen look very put together to be suddenly bawling like children. So that was really impactful. You know, there's so much there that is misunderstood or not understood with what is basically social contagion. In a room that like that, yes, there are people who are going to have a very impactful experience because they feel like they're able to emote in a way that they they can't in other places, or they're able to get in touch with uh, memories and um, feelings. And that's a good thing. What is not so authentic, though, is when everybody starts or nearly everyone starts to do the same thing. You have to wonder why. And is it that this is authentic and that this is really helpful to everyone? Or is it that they want to be liked by the leadership, by the people around them? They want to fit in. They want to feel like they're getting it. Mm, That's going to say that's the whole thing was getting it. Have you got it? Have you got it yet? Right. So I think, how do you show that you've got it? If you feel like they're trying to get you in touch with your feelings, then you emote, then you show your feelings. And so I don't know how much of it at the end of the day is true for some people, probably, but not for others. But if you know that you might be berated for not getting it, I think you'll do a lot of things to show that you, that it's making the desired impact on you. So you can be a good follower, you know, from your perspective of being there, what do you think was going on? It it was just so hard because the days were so long and everything was so packed in, like even our breaks that we, we, we were given homework to speak to people in our lives that, you know, we'd had some sort of break in the relationship and to repair those relationships, that was the homework. So it's like, it felt very highly pressurized that you didn't even have time to to kind of step out and actually reflect on what you'd just been part of. And you'd asked to buddy up as well. It's the thing. So you went on your own. So yeah, again, that's very purposeful. <laughs> so I was feeling quite overwhelmed a bit because I was very confronted by the idea of also calling someone. I hated sort of calling people generally, especially out of the blue. You know, I can do that with people I really know, but also to have this com- confronting conversations with people that you you know you've already had like some tense relationship with or something has happened that's not been quite right you know and it, and that uh, I just feel like you get people into all sorts of trouble with with people who have been in abusive relationships things like this and you know for me it was it was it felt empowering because it felt like well I wouldn't have done this if it hadn't been for landmark you know at the time, that's what I felt. Oh, yeah, landmark enabled me to have this conversation with my ex that like I never would have had. And I felt so much better. And that's what I actually shared about was having that conversation. And, and it enabled me to feel like, oh, you know, because I am someone who shares stuff, 
quite openly, you know, I could overshare if anything. So to be in that environment where that sort of behavior was encouraged, it's like, oh, that's cool. You know, we can talk about all these massive things and we don't have to do small talk. For me, that was like, oh, wow, those are people who you want to talk about like deep, meaningful things about making a difference in the world and all this stuff, you know, <laughs> you know, that's the kind of thing I would do anyway. And then people would call me intense. So it was it was like being surrounded by other people who were also intense and then they were encouraging that sort of oversharing behavior, right? So for me, that felt good. And it felt like, oh, wow, I'm in this environment where you can do that and it's actually encouraged. It really gets you by the end of it to this sense of like high, like you're taking drugs or something. And I just remember feeling like, oh, I can do anything. I can do anything. Because at the end, it's like you get that, oh, yeah, all this story that you've made up about your life, that's that's a lie. You don't have to believe that. And for me, that felt empowering at the time because I didn't even know anything about self-help. You know, if I'd known anything, I could have been like, well, that's like CBT or that's like, (laughs) you know, that's another thing that I could have learned somewhere else, not in this environment, about my thoughts not, you know, being exactly the truth. But for me, because I didn't know anything, it's like, wow, you mean I don't have to listen to all those negative, like, thoughts, <laughs> negative self-talk? I can do anything now. And I can just, like, smile at people and talk to people. And, you know, it, it left you on that feeling, that sense of, like, high. And, like, you'd bonded with this group that had been through something that not many other people had probably been through. Right. Yeah. You know, the bonding is also... A very empowering thing when people really do feel that they are part of a group that really they have shared so much with and other people have shared with them. It's a funny thing though, right? Because these are not your new friends. It feels that way. But if you leave it, they leave you. And they'll turn on you, I think, if given the the instruction to do so, to berate you or put you down. It's an interesting dichotomy for a lot of people because they do feel like I've shared more with these people or in front of these people than with anyone else. And that does make you feel close. But it's sort of like this forced closeness. Yeah, it really is. And when you're on that high, that's when they sell you to do the next course as well. It's when they're like, well, if you want to keep playing big in your life and you want to create those possibilities you create for yourself, then you need to do the next advanced course. Otherwise, you'll just go out into the world and it will be, you know, it won't last, this feeling. So was there a time that you either witnessed this or you had it happen to you where you chose not to sign up for the next course or the advanced course and how you were treated or how someone else was treated in front of you who said no? Well, there was just this sense of, if you weren't going to sign up, there was this sense of like, well, what are you doing? You know, you're not playing a bigger game. You're being resistant. I think there was that sense of what's your racket? You know, they called it a racket um, of if you had any sort of complaint <laughs> about landmark, that's your racket. So I think there was that sense. And it was just like this momentum of like, you could easily get swept up in that momentum. So if you weren't getting swept up in the momentum, I think, yeah, there's this idea that you're being resistant and what's stopping you and you're trying to put excuses in the way and, you know, you just have to make things work. Like if you haven't got time free, well, you just have to make time free. If you haven't got the money, you just have to get the money. If you do this course, then you'll have the money because you'll get all these possibilities, blah, blah, blah. 
Right. So, you know, when that happens too, that it's back on you, that it's your racket, if you don't want to be involved or, or continue, or if you have a complaint in those moments, when I look at that objectively, I think, okay, well, here's an organization that doesn't want to be open to change and to hearing how they might be negatively impacting people or that they actually might not be necessary in everyone's life to the degree that they want to feel that way. And so then if they can put it on you, like being with a, I don't know, a controller or an unhealthy partner and you say, hey, I don't like when you treat me this way and they will say, you know, well, that's your racket, basically. It's your problem, right? It doesn't give you the sense that they're going to be open to changing. Yeah. And it did feel like anytime anyone had some sort of question, logical question or valid concern, you know, yeah, again, that's your racket. That's your story. And people were publicly shamed, you know, for having any sort of like any question that was in any way doubting what Landmark were doing. And how were they publicly shamed? Well, just the way that the uh, leader, like, you know, Jerry would treat them. I can't remember exactly what he, he would say, but it was like a very berating sort of dismissive and derisory sort of attitude, uh, as if to say, like, who are you? Who are you to sort of question this? You know, you obviously haven't got it yet. Or that, you know, that's just your story. Or you're just trying to intellectualize it. That's the other thing I keep saying. Don't try to intellectualize it. It's not an intellectual experience. So I basically doubt your own logic and trust in your feelings. <laughs> that kind of thing. It's interesting because it, it, one shouldn't have to preclude the other. You could do both. You can be ha using your critical thinking and having emotions. One often drives the other, but it, it is really interesting. Yeah. So you're not supposed to intellectualize, which I guess means don't notice certain things. Yeah, exactly. Don't don't notice that the content has just been kind of vague and rubbish, basically. <laughs> right. Like stretching a point oh, for about five hours. It's exhausting. <laughs> right. And then if you're tired or if you need to go to the loo, then it's, you know, what's wrong with you, basically. Yeah. And they'd have people door guards. They'd actually have door guards whose job it was to convince people to stay in the room. Okay. So once again, they're not telling people that they can't go, right? <laughs> yeah right but they are they'll stop you and then and then because they have this thing well if you're not happy with the experience you can leave and you can get your money back and one guy one man actually did take up this offer and he had the door guards pursuing him to try and get him back into the room so it's like yeah you well you can leave but you know we're gonna pursue you and make you feel guilty about it my goodness, that's really actually harassment, right? To be followed, pursued. That's frightening. Okay. So like all what they call strong arming techniques, you know, and making you feel threatened. My goodness. Okay. So then, so just in the essence of time, I know we could continue talking about this. I want to be able to get to one taste. And so you finally left Landmark. What was it that triggered your desire to leave or the courage to go? There are numerous things. So I ended up doing the advanced course, the self-expression leadership program, then coaching on the self-expression leadership program. These are all the different stages in the, in the curriculum for living, as they call it. And then I, I did uh, the coaching, uh, the introduction leaders program. And I did that twice. And that is uh, six months of your life 
of heavy duty volunteering. They called it assisting, but spending most like a part time job. It was equivalent to a part time job. The amount of time you spent at the center um, assisting and then being, you know, offered other assisting assignments as well on top of that. So I think I don't I can't even remember how much it, it could have been equivalent to 20 hours per week. I can't even remember more than that. Spending whole weekends from five, five hours, six hours or something, calling people up to try and get them to register or to come to an event. So basically free marketing, free telesales. So there was a number of things. So one of the things actually was which I don't know if I if I consciously thought about it, but was part of the thing that made me feel comfortable was that they had this whole thing around integrity and being on time and being your word and uh, having ADHD, um, having trouble with organisation. I would often end up running late and it was very stressful. So I, mean, I remember me and a few other people who were often late were just running down that road to try and get used to to try and get to the um seminar whatever on time it was very stressful and they wouldn't accept any excuse for not turning up and assisting unless oh yeah you're in you're you're about to die or something (laughs) it doesn't matter what you've got on you had to move it around you know wedding whatever it doesn't matter and so when you was late you had to go and restore your integrity of the room so you, you had to make this sort of declaration of oh, you know, I'm late and this is the impact and I'm restoring my integrity and front, stand up in front of everyone. So that's it, quite pretty shaming. So the, yeah, it's a, a massive thing around time. At one point I I was assisting for the seminar series and I was, I think, I think about 15 minutes late to uh, an assisting agreement, mind you. I wasn't even getting paid. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> and the leader of the seminar verbally abuses me, shouts at me in front of another leader, Jatin. And, and I can't even remember exactly what he said, but I think it was something like, what are you doing? How dare you turn up? And he was like angrily stacking out the chairs, like, <clears throat> like you know, just really pissed off with me, um, angry that he'd had to do some of this work himself himself that I was supposed to do setting up the room and I was in tears like he made me feel so bad and ashamed that I was just literally in tears and he didn't he didn't apologize he didn't uh nothing and I was the one that had to go and apologize to him for turning up 15 minutes late and the guy there who's a registration manager in the office was even just pissed off at me that oh you know Priscilla I said I said you were I I I said that you were your word and that, you know, I vouched for you and all this kind of stuff. So it was really upsetting. And I was the one to make to feel bad. And then another incident was even worse than that. When I was uh, on my assisting agreement talking to people, one of the people said that their uh, partner had killed themselves as a result of being in the forum, had been triggered. Uh, I think they may have had bipolar, something like that. But I just remember feeling very shocked and not even knowing like what to say apart from sorry. Sorry that happened. And she just very calmly said it as well. Like she didn't even berate me. She didn't even get angry. And that made it just even more impactful for me. And afterwards, when I spoke to the person you're meant to sort of get, you know, feedback on how the day went, um, all they said was, oh, well, all you could say was sorry. And she just looked like she literally didn't know what to do. I think she looked a bit shocked herself. But that was all I got, you know, after hearing something that was so traumatic, that was the aftercare. Oh, that's all you could do is to say sorry. And then like, you know, off you go. Wow. 
Wow. Incredible. It's incredible to know also that here, this is something, you know, people pay to be involved in this organization and you were going to go and I think be used as free labor, basically being taken advantage of. And so you're late to being taken advantage of (laughs) and they abuse you in this way. I mean, it's so layered terms of this situation just being wrong and wrong and wrong. So yeah, I guess you had reached your max and you were done. And I'm sure though, that it was still, even with all that happening, it was, it was hard to go. Yeah. And, and I, and you know, that incident with the phone call with the person saying that the partner killed herself, even then I didn't just leave straight away. And it felt like I was literally in prison, I, I think I remember so many times where I was sitting there because I I hated the, these um, the, these assisting agreements where I had to sit there for hours and trying to phone people in my life and running out of people I could call and then calling people and being like, you're going to talk to me about Landmark, aren't you? And it just felt so calculated and so cynical. The more higher you go in Landmark, the more there is pressure to register people into the, into the forum and to get people to come to Landmark. And that pressure was so intense that it got to the point where it felt like conversations I was having with people, I would be trying to manipulate in order to get them to talk about something that was important to them. So I could then bring in Landmark and say how that would help. And like I was calculating all of this in my head, every new person I met, it's like, I have to try and get Landmark in there somehow. I have to try and get them, get them to talk about something important. And it was like, this like I think someone else has said it like uh, this way but like a landmark program had been downloaded onto my brain and it's like I was like it was like a a landmark marketing zombie machine like I just I couldn't it felt horrible to be that cynical and to be that calculating and I got so sick of talking to people about landmark and the time that it was taking up doing assisting like I hardly had any free time at all People would come and visit me and I'd be like, well, I can, I'm not free all day, <laughs> basically, you know, and I, I just got so tired. And I think it's like my body knew before my mind did that I was just so exhausted. I was so exhausted that I just couldn't do it anymore. I just didn't want to talk to anyone about Landmark anymore because I'd had so many people, you know, probably just like fed up with me for talking about landmark people just stopping stop being friends with me I think because I I was pressurizing them too much about landmark and and people yeah just didn't want to hear about it and I didn't want to talk about anymore after a while it's just too much right you know it's interesting this line about my body knew before my mind did I love that I'm going to make sure to come back to that but yeah I have this piece of paper that I got from someone who had been in landmark who said that she had become what she called obnoxious because she would bring it up all the time. And she said, here's a piece of paper that shows, and it's probably online now, but it was just this, you know, copied page that was basically all of the opportunities for recruitment. And it included um, family events, including funerals. And hospital rooms when you're going to visit and just everything was a way and and every moment was a way to or um, an opportunity to bring people into the fold and you're right I mean then you're not reading the room you're not sensitive you're not putting other people's needs first basically 
it's yeah you can feel very driven one of the incidents that happened to me in my friendship group was that I had told a friend about Landmark after their mother had died and I had heard back from another friend that people thought this wasn't good of me that I shouldn't have done that you know at the time I just remember thinking well I was just you know trying to help I was just trying to offer something that would help them and 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 then having this conversation where I apologized but at the same time still not understanding what I was really apologizing for and and only afterwards realizing and actually having a conversation with them again um to say I I really apologize this time because in the time I was just saying sorry because I was just so mortified that people have been talking about me behind my back saying what is Priscilla doing Right. I'm sure that's very hard, especially as you talked about feeling different and feeling like you're standing out in some way or, you know, being talked about, I'm sure does not feel good to anyone. But especially if you have felt marginalized, feels very bad and rewounding in in a lot of ways. So just in the essence of time, and I know we could talk about this story for days, but moving on to the next, um, going into one taste. So how long was it before you got involved and what was the appeal? And, you know, this this week, even though I don't, you know, your episode is not necessarily going to come out this week, but this week, actually, towards the beginning of June of 2023, th- there was a legal precedent set and the person who started One Taste was brought up on charges of forced labor. And it's helping people, I think, be educated about the organization and what can go wrong. Uh, but yeah, I mean, forced sexual practices and forced labor, it's not, a, it's not a good look. So tell me about the organization and how soon after Landmark you got involved and what you were looking for. So it was quite soon after Landmark. I would say it was maybe within the same year that I left. It was basically someone else in Landmark who had recommended this group called One Taste to me. Uh, and said I should give it a go and said it was really empowering and all I knew was it was to do with sexuality or it was something like a bit like Tantra, I think I'd heard it described. And I, I guess I was intrigued because I felt like uh, I had a lot of shame around sexuality. So I had this very, what's it, conflicted relationship about with with sex and 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 a lot, yeah, a lot of shame and not feeling like I could fully like let go or relax with it and not feeling confident with it or about asking for what I wanted and having these kind of encounters with with men which were just you know like I just keep changing my mind like I'd go back to people's flats or houses whatever and then I wouldn't have sex <laughs> and and so it's like almost like I was kind of wanted it but then I was denying myself um because I felt guilty I felt bad like it was wrong to do that so I think I was really trying to work through that shame that I had around it and so I saw this as maybe or maybe this could help me get in touch with my body and my sexuality and, and feel more confident about it and 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 as as opposed to landmark being quite dry and and feeling quite you know what well, how they say, that's how they describe it in one taste oh it's quite dry you know but like not having that element at all to it and it felt like a bit it was like female empowerment whereas landmark I mean I didn't claim to be about any sort of marginalized you know empowerment at all not that one taste was but you know uh it was very much lacking in any sort of socio-economic context 
Interesting. So I know just in the essence of time, what will probably happen, we'll have a few more moments today, but need to continue another time if that's okay with you, because I don't want, I don't want you to rush through this part. And also the whole healing from all of it that we haven't talked about. But I do have a question about being neurodivergent and the appeal of getting involved in cultic groups or you know, a system that is kind of a strict system. And if that's something that feels good and relieving or safe, or there's something about it that speaks to your neurological system, go ahead. I'd love you to talk about that because one taste is going to be, I think, part of our next story. Yeah. I want to give the, the fact that you got involved in a second group and then the coming out of that and healing and the work that you're doing. I don't want to rush through that. I want to give it its respect. So tell me though about the the link here with neurodivergence and cultic systems. So um, definitely um, in terms of, I could say in terms of landmark, especially, well, also one taste, but you know, there's these steps that you follow and if you follow these steps in the exact way we tell you, then you'll get the results that you want. And for me, that felt like a relief, like you say, because, you know, out there in the world, you know, you don't really have that sort of magic formula. Um, you know, you have those steps that like, oh, you should get a job, you should do this, but no one explains exactly how you should achieve those things. And there's a lot that's unwritten. There's a lot of social etiquette that's unwritten that you just have to, people just assume you know, and then when you don't, it's like you're shamed for not knowing stuff uh, or not knowing how to be polite or, oh, you were meant to ask about this person's, I don't know, uh, son or whatever, and you forgot to ask about that. You know, like there's just all this stuff that was is unwritten. So to have it, things explicitly laid out that this is what you need to do and this is how you this is the landmark way of doing things and and behaving that felt like a relief just because it was it felt clear but then on the other hand it wasn't really clear <laughs> because there's all these rules like being in integrity don't make yourself bad and wrong but then no but then we'll get you to stand up and and talk about restoring your integrity in front of everyone else so then inevitably we'll probably feel bad and wrong but don't make yourself feel bad and wrong <laughs> you know so it seems clear but then it's not really clear and then when it's not clear it's like well go and get coaching to be clear about it stuff <laughs> which only make you less clear uh huh yes i think i think you perfectly understand it <laughs> i think you perfectly understand how not understandable it is it is an appeal and just that sense of like you feel like you're doing something that's going to affect society because Landmark was all about we're going to make a difference in the world, we're going to transform the world. Wouldn't it great if, you know, governments did this kind of work and you feel like you felt this purpose, you feel this purpose in life, you've got this mission, it's sort of zealous mis- mission with these other people that you're in this together and you're committed and you're this sort of elite sort of group of people commit to making a change that can and that you know like you said the love bombing it, it that can be very addictive that feeling of feeling like oh they love you for who you are and you're accepted and when you're not really obviously you aren't accepted if you do things a certain way or if you <laughs> get more people to register or whatever yeah and I'm wondering also about the the idea that 
that there are times that people who are neurodivergent are open and upfront and honest uh, in a way that might get them into trouble, right? That other people find entirely refreshing. I would much prefer that than someone who's working an angle. I guess I wonder if that's the code by which you participate in social interaction. Is there then a greater assumption that other people are doing the same, that they're being true and honest in what they're saying? And so, yeah, I mean, what you said about that, um, there's a definitely a naivety about uh, being neurodivergent. Um, I think, you know, especially being autistic, or even ADHD, I mean, it's all one quite <laughs> overlapping spectrum, but I, I do feel like, you know, because there's been instances before in my life, before even getting to a cult, where I've, I've gone into the car of a stranger, for example, because I was cold and I wanted to go home and you know it nearly turned into a very bad thing but it didn't but you know I would I would trust people and I I just I couldn't even imagine that someone would be that manipulative or that coercive or not say what they mean because for me it just felt like incomprehensible just yeah why would someone be that cruel why would be someone be that mean yeah so I'd take people at that word and think like when they're asking questions and getting all this information out about me that they're just interested in me as a person. Yeah. And sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. You might not know the difference. It's hard to have to train yourself to not trust the word of others and not trust the actions of others. Actually, there can be some depression in that. Why is it that I can't? And it would be lovely if you could. Um, Just as we're finishing up then for today, we're going to just skip to having people know about you, where to find your work and your talk, and and then it will be a to-be-continued story. But if people want to see what you're up to and um, connect with you or hear the talk that you you gave uh, through the ICSA, et cetera, where can they find your things? And we'll also put things in the show notes. I'm on LinkedIn. I've got all my talks on there, um, but under Priscilla Isles, my name. So, but I'm also on um, Twitter um, at Priscilla Isles and Instagram, uh, cultural liaisons. Uh, but yeah, I'm on YouTube as well. I think if you just type in my name, it should it should come up again. Some of the talks I've done like with the Autism Acceptance Conference, for example, in Academy, I've done the talks with them. It, that's wonderful. And it's reminding me too, when I don't, you know, I was, um, I'm a special ed teacher and that was my first, uh, career. I still have that license and, um, it's, I love it, but it's true that when there's a lot going on or a number, just, it could even be more than one thing. It could be two things that, uh, things go under diagnosed and reported and assessed. And also particularly for people presenting as female when they have autism, it really, really goes undiagnosed or underrepresented and the symptom picture is going to be potentially different. So um, I'm glad that you've been able to pursue that for yourself uh, and just looking through the details of what that looks like, what the picture is and how you might fit in. And unfortunately, a lot of females are on their own with this. Yeah. I mean, I, I, sort of convinced myself that autism like was just this thing that you know sort of nerdy mathematicians or like computer science science geeks or whatever 
that was who the autistic people were, like big bang theory, kind of Sheldon or something. <laughs> so it's only till my partner, like when I married him, my husband actually pointed it out and another person pointed out who was autistic ADHD and she sent me this Samantha Craft unofficial autism checklist, which was really useful because I identified with, with so much in that. Good. Oh, that's very helpful. Okay. Okay, good. All right. So then thank you so much for what you've shared so far. This this is going to be an exciting interview to continue because um, with your story, I think it's so compelling and people are going to be able to relate to it for so many reasons and they're going to want to know what happened. So, all right, to be continued and we will talk again soon. Thank you. One more thing before you go. Thank you, Priscilla. Thank you for sharing so much with us. And as I mentioned in the introduction, Priscilla will be talking some more and getting more into her stories for a bonus episode for the Patreon supporters. So if you were kind of captivated by her story and want to find out more, we talk for over another hour in a bonus episode. It was fantastic. I do want to mention, though, something that Priscilla talked about today. I mean, she talked about so many things. And the fact that she comes from these different perspectives that cause her to have this lovely kind of awareness and sensitivity about the impact that things have on you when you come from a place of already feeling different and how hard life becomes when you get involved in these groups that make you feel, at least at the beginning, that this is going to give you a place where you're going to be with your people, but come to find out that they other you just as much as any other group. And in fact, you'll be treated with so much more judgment and so much conditionality in those relationships, more than exists in the world outside. It's such a cruel hoax to play on people, to suck them in by making them feel they're going to be a part of something finally. One of the things that she mentioned, you know, I've mentioned this before in the podcast, but every once in a while there's a guest who says something so perfectly that I think I'm never going to forget that phrase, that sentence, that thought. And Priscilla had one of those. And I think almost all of my guests do. At some point, there is just this thing that goes right through me. She used the phrase, my body knew before my mind did. So her body could sense that what she was involved with was not healthy. Her body could feel that she was not happy. This is incredibly important. And I want to really remind all of you that your body talks to you all the time. It really is your mind talking to you through your body. It is releasing chemicals in your system because of something that it's being put through, because of stress that it's under, because of a situation that's leaving you feeling depressed. So your body releases those chemicals or the fight or flight mechanism, and it releases adrenaline, which causes so many physical symptoms. But people who get involved in cultic groups and also sometimes with neurodivergence, there is a bit of a disconnection from the emotional self. And 
within a cult especially, there is not only a disconnection, but there is a willful ignorance. There's a willful blindness. There is the need to ignore your emotional self, unless it's absolutely positive and you couldn't have found something better for you and you couldn't imagine being happier in your life since you found this, whatever this is. But if it's at all negative, if you're experiencing anxiety, depression, anything, anger, all of those things are considered to be getting in your way, you're creating them, you're playing the victim. I mean, she even said that within Landmark, if you had any complaint at all, that was, quote unquote, your racket, as opposed to you just stating a fact. So it comes back and it's sort of mm, redirected onto you as you having a problem, as opposed to you pointing out that there is a problem here. And so our bodies do alert us at times to things that our minds might not as quickly, especially if we are being taught to disengage from what our mind is telling us or from feelings, or we've just been raised in an environment where we don't have the language to describe the feelings. But we can say, I have a stomachache, because that is sometimes the end result of having adrenaline in your system that releases more acid into your stomach to break down the food there, if there's any, for fuel so you can flee if you need to. But if you're on an empty stomach and you're also not needing to run or do anything, you're just going to have acid in your stomach and you're going to have that butterfly feeling and then eventually nausea and then not be able to eat. And all of that is usually because you're feeling anxious. But instead of having the words for that, or really being able to be allowed to say, this makes me anxious, or what you're doing to me makes me feel fear. Instead, you just can crumple over and hold your stomach and have a stomach ache, and that's sort of the best you can do. But it's important. So listen to the symptoms. Follow their lead at times when you're not sure how you're feeling or what you're allowed to be feeling. Your body will often tell you through tiredness, too. Your body will sometimes tell you by it trembling, by getting a headache, by having a racing heart. There are many things that are messages that something is off. And it could be that you're coming down with a cold. It could be something physical. But sometimes it is that it is from an emotional source. And so take it seriously. And notice also when you're having physical symptoms, if they repeat themselves in certain environments or with certain people. Notice, let's say, if you're with someone who makes you so angry, but you can't yell at them because it's not safe, and instead you clench your teeth, and then you have a jaw that hurts, and then you get headaches. Notice the repetition of symptoms because that will sometimes alert you to the source of your symptoms. What just caused you to feel this way? And did that person or that environment or that experience cause you to have similar symptoms the last time? I think it's really important when people talk about how they communicate to each other that they also learn how to communicate to themselves and they become a good steward of themselves and they learn to translate the messages that they are giving themselves. Thank you so much to Priscilla. Thank you so much for the work that she's doing too. 
And I look forward to having you hear more of her conversation as a bonus episode. And I wish you all a good week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.